0: Welcome to Studio Berlin, our new current affairs show here on KCRW Berlin. Each week, we'll take a closer look at the headlines and the events shaping our lives here in the city. I'm this week's host, Maisie Hitchcock, and today's show is all about Brexit, the UK's plan to leave the European Union. There are a number of questions on the table, Who might succeed outgoing Prime Minister Theresa May? Where does the battle for Britain's future stand right now? And how does all of this affect the rest of Europe and Berlin? Here with me today is John Wirth, a communications consultant for European politicians who also teaches EU negotiations at the College of Europe in Bruges. And Jan Techau, Senior Fellow and Director of the Europe Programme at the German Marshall Fund. So welcome to you both.
1: All right, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks
2: for the invite. Mm -hmm.
0: So Brexit is a three-year divorce in the making. So before we dive into the current situation, let's have a look back on how it all started. In June 2016, the UK held a referendum on whether to leave the European Union. The Leave vote narrowly won, sending British lawmakers into a tailspin. Then-Prime Minister David Cameron quickly resigned and was replaced by Theresa May. Over the course of the next few years, May put forth three separate proposals, all of which were rejected by the British Parliament. As in any divorce, there are many questions that need to be worked out. About money, resident status, and the Irish border. The original date for the UK to leave the EU was this past March, but the EU granted an extension until October 31, 2019. The internal gridlock in British politics led Theresa May to officially step down as Prime Minister on June 7th, but she'll remain in office until her successor is chosen. So seven candidates are now in the race to become the new Conservative Party leader and next Prime Minister of the UK. John, who's most likely to replace Theresa May?
2: Far and away the favourite is the former Foreign Minister Boris Johnson, well known for his mop of blonde hair. Um, He is a long way ahead of all of the other candidates. And I think we can say with some certainty that he's then going to be the next Prime Minister when this process is completed uh, in July.
0: What's, What's Boris Johnson's stance on Brexit?
2: Boris Johnson has largely defended a harder Brexit course than Theresa May. He wants a a more distant relationship between the UK and the EU, which would probably be economically damaging to the UK. Essentially, Brussels would not particularly welcome a Boris Johnson prime minister because he would be defending a Brexit course, which would be which would take Britain further away from the EU than what's currently on the table.
0: Can you just explain how things might pan out for the UK if Johnson becomes prime minister?
2: At the moment, the British uh, government is uh, is with the Conservative Party, but supported by the Northern Irish Democratic Unionist Party in Parliament. And those two parties together have a majority of five seats. That means if only three members of Parliament leave the, the Conservatives and cross the House and join the opposition, the government has no majority anymore. So I think the most likely thing to happen will be is that some pragmatic Conservatives quit a, a Johnson-led Conservative Party. And that therefore means that Britain essentially enters into a period of even deeper political crisis than it's in just now. That would then mean that the chances are quite high there would be then an early general election at some point this autumn.
0: So, John, if we were to have fresh national elections at the end of the year, could you just talk about who the key players are in the British political landscape and what the possible outcome of these elections could be.
2: So the biggest party in the House of Commons at the moment is the Conservative Party, currently led by Theresa May, probably to be led by Boris Johnson. The big question there would be, what would their Brexit position be going into such an election and how much of a kind of a hardcore Brexit position will they defend? The person that kind of casts a shadow over that party is the is the long term Eurosceptic Nigel Farage, so he's not actually in Parliament, but he kind of casts a shadow over the Conservative Party and pulls them in a more Eurosceptic, more pro Brexit direction. So the question is is how would his movement, the newly formed Brexit Party, take votes away from the Conservatives or not? On the other side, you've got traditionally more pro European parties, the Labour Party, which has a has a vague position on Brexit just at the moment under its party leader Jeremy Corbyn, who says the Brexit referendum results should be respected, but he does not want the type of Brexit that Theresa May has negotiated. And then you've got two smaller pro-EU parties, Liberal Democrats and the Greens, who've been recovering quite strongly in recent months. And then you have the regionalists, Plaid Cymru in Wales, and the very important Scottish National Party uh, in Scotland. Uh, that's The Scottish National Party is one of the most efficient and well-led parties in the UK, led by Nicola Sturgeon. And they've been some of the strongest critics of the Brexit process. So ultimately, the question would then be, after such an election, could the Conservatives rescue themselves by by defending a more pro-Brexit line? Or would the Labour Party possibly win such an election by actually going against Brexit, saying that they were in favour of a second referendum?
0: Jan, what would you say to the idea of us having another referendum at this juncture?
1: There is, of course, in principle, a bit of a funny smell to a second referendum because it feels like, you know, one is not enough. You keep on voting until you get the result that you want. You know, that's the usual kind of argument against this. I think the strongest argument in favor of a second referendum is that when people went to the polls for the first time back in in 2016, um, the consequences of, of getting out of the EU were not really clear to anybody. In the electorate, neither to the you know uh, pro leavers, not you know to the pro remainers, uh, and that you know image is now a lot clearer. The costs are more um, clearly before you, and you know the numbers are there. Uh, and the immediate effects have you know started to be felt. Um, so people say that now is the time that the uh, electorate can make a much more educated choice on this, um, and uh, and so you have two fairly strong arguments in favor of it and and against. Um, when, when you're walking the streets of London these days, what you see is a lot of stickers on, on lampposts saying, I want a final say on the outcome of Brexit. So there is a relatively strong sentiment in the UK um, that, you know, doesn't base it on any of these arguments, but says, you know, we are the people, we are the sovereign in the end. We need to have a say on a monumental decision of this kind. Um, So, uh, you know, what the actual dynamic is has a lot to do with whether Boris Johnson as a new uh, Conservative leader could get a majority in Parliament that Theresa May wasn't able to get or whether we're heading into new elections. Um, uh, But a second referendum, I think, could be well justified. And it it feels to me that the, the people in the UK increasingly feel that this might actually be the right thing to do.
0: Do you not think, though, that most elections or most manifestos make promises that politicians often do not keep? Uh, The same could be said for a referendum. I mean, there's no legal basis for a second referendum. Would this not be problematic?
1: Yeah, it could very well be that the second referendum doesn't resolve anything, that we get a very tight result once more, perhaps on the other side of the majority this time. But again, a 52 versus 48 thing wouldn't settle anything. I mean, the, the dynamic that's playing out in the UK would continue to play out. Um, and every single government, no matter which one it would be, would be suffering from it. Um, the difference, I think, between manifesto um, uh, promises, the ones that you've mentioned, um, and a referendum, I think, is, is also important to keep in mind. Uh, you write all kinds of things into a manifesto, uh, and that's more kind of a general direction that you want to go. Um, in a referendum, you have a very binary yes or no choice to make. Uh, The question is much, much clearer. So here, basically, the information base uh, on which you then, you know, base your actual choice in the ballot box uh, is much, much more important. And I think it is absolutely fair to say um, that the campaign, especially on the Brexit side, but also partly on the Remain side, uh, were, you know, mostly conducted based on, on misinformation uh, and especially on the Brexit side, also on plain lies. So I, I could also sense a bit of a you know disenfranchisement that people feel in the UK saying, you know, you put such an enormously important yes or no question in front of us, not just some general manifesto stuff, uh, and you expected us to make that choice based on all of that, you know, uh, a very, you know, thin layer of information that you gave us. Um, that's not right. Let's have a second referendum. A second refer- uh, referendum would always have a bit of a funny smell, as I said, um, but it still might be the right kind of thing to get some of the vitriol, some of the, the poison out of the system that's accumulated in the UK political system.
2: No, um, it's also worth saying, however, that this is not a short term solution, it would take at least 22 weeks uh, in the UK to organise such a referendum. So the earliest you could possibly do it would be in the spring of 2020. So ultimately, what Brussels and the EU would like would be some clarity rather soon. And if that clarity is via referendum, it's not going to be so soon, ultimately. So this is going to rumble on for some months yet.
0: You're listening to Studio Berlin, our new current affairs show here on KCRW Berlin. We'll be back after a short break with more on how people in Berlin are preparing for Brexit.
2: Joe Biden leads in Iowa, but Elizabeth Warren is surging. How are Democrats in the first state to vote making their choices? I'm Josh Barrow for that plus rising tensions with Iran, a supposed deal with Mexico, Trump's willingness to take foreign info for his campaign, and Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard's anti-war message that's falling flat. Join Rich Lowry, Liz Brunig, Natasha Karecki, Kerry Howley, and me for Left, Right, and Center. Left, Right, and Center airs each Saturday at 11 a.m. and Sunday at 6 a.m. on 104.1 KCRW Berlin.
0: Welcome back to Studio Berlin on 104.1 FM, I'm Maisie Hitchcock, and we're talking about the ongoing Brexit saga with John Wirth, consultant for European politicians, and Jan Techau with the German Marshall Fund. Well, I'm, I'm tempted to say that the people who are getting it wrong are those who print things, saying I'm talking about a hard Brexit. It's absolutely inevitable. It's a hard Brexit. I don't accept the terms hard and soft Brexit. That's outgoing British Prime Minister Theresa May, using some of that Brexit jargon that we've all heard so much of. So... Jan for the people who aren't really familiar with the Brexit vocabulary can you distinguish between a soft deal a hard brexit and a no deal brexit because these terms are being bandied around a lot at the moment yeah. and we don't all know what they mean
1: I think there are fundamentally two options here on the table one is the uh, the leave deal the brexit deal that Theresa May negotiated with the European Union which has been put uh, to a vote in the in the house of commons several times and failed to gain a majority um, or a No Deal Brexit, which I think is the equivalent of a hard Brexit, uh, which means that you you know the UK crushes out of the EU with any kind of uh, regulatory framework, you know, to organise that. The difference is quite clear. I mean, in the in the Brexit deal, uh, you have a regulated. Um, A kind of deal that sorts out the legal questions, sorts out the money issues, um, sorts out some of the second and third order consequences of all of this uh, and would provide a legal framework on which businesses, for example, but also governments, you know, can base their planning Um, in a a hard Brexit. You know, one without this deal, um, what you have is the situation where from one day to the next, um, you know, none of the EU law would apply any longer in the UK. Um, You know, borders would have to close, you know, so that things passing through would have to be inspected. Uh, WTO rules would apply automatically, uh, which would be considerably less favorable in terms of, you know, trade uh, relationships um, than the ones that we have within the EU single market, obviously. Um, So you have all kinds of uncertainties built into the hard Brexit as well. There is also one thing I think that needs to be said here, and that is that, of course, the future relationship between the UK and the EU has only now to be negotiated. That is not part of the Brexit deal. It's often forgotten. People think that this is the one deal and then that's it. Um, the real work actually starts the moment that the UK is out under a Brexit deal, let's assume, um, when they have to go into negotiations over how to define the relationship, the future relationship, including trade and a few other things. Um, and so, you know, a, a, a regular, a regular you know, deal-based Brexit would by no means be the end of the story. So this story, one way or another, will continue to, to, uh, you know, to haunt us in a way, uh, no matter what the outcome is immediately in you know, the next few weeks.
0: We don't actually know what the consequences of Brexit will be, since there's no precedent. A number of Britain's laws have been formed in cooperation with the EU. So in the event of a hard Brexit, a lot of this legislation would effectively disappear overnight. There's been a lot of speculation in the UK press about everything from food and medicine shortages to riots, to EU citizens being booted out of the country overnight. But what about the impact of Brexit over here? How might a hard Brexit play out for Britons here in Germany?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of these preparations for that, you know, contingency have been made. It's interesting to see how the the government of the city of Berlin, but also the German government, the Foreign Office, um, have started to really systematically inform Brits about their rights um, uh, we have seen an interesting spike in applications for German citizenship uh, by, U- by by UK citizens who um, have some sort of, of, of legal basis for it. Um, you know, uh, seemingly a lot of people are interested in getting that second passport just in case. Um, but there will also be a small number of people who, because of, you know, uh, company policies, because of labour law, will probably have a much harder time. Um, you know, those are the hardship cases. What the actual number of those people is, I don't know. Um, but it seems to me that um, you know the 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 um, on the legal side, after you know quite some sleepiness in the beginning, initially after the referendum, uh, I think the, the 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 planning for this has has progressed quite a bit. I've even you know seen uh, privately run clubs popping up, uh, you know where uh, Brits organise themselves, you know or Germans get organised to help Brits. Uh, you know, in a more systematic way in terms of advice, in terms of how to deal with bureaucracy and so on and so forth, so that after a Brexit, you know, they can, you know, continue with their lives as undisturbed as possible.
2: Berlin is the only uh, land, uh, the state of Germany, that, that's been doing this formal system. Um, other states of Germany have been choosing to wait still. So essentially, if you sign in, as a, as, and I've gone through this process myself as a Brit living in, in, in Berlin, you're invited to a meeting um, at, at the by the city authorities... You take along some paperwork and they will give you then a permanent right to remain that they will then put into your passport. Uh, the priority initially is for those Brits that live in Germany for more than five years. They then start moving to the Brits that live in Germany for the period of two to five years. And those are the most recent arrivals but will be the ones that will be done at the, the, the very end. It's a bit of a bureaucratic process, but I must say that Berlin is at least trying to make sure that everyone knows what's what and everyone knows what their rights are. And regardless of what happens with Brexit, they're going through it this anyway. Because bear in mind that at the moment, until 31st of October, Brits living in Germany have the full rights to be here. But imagine if I wanted to get a mortgage to buy a house, for example, the bank would want to know, do I have the right to stay here medium term so as I can pay off my mortgage? Having this piece of paper that essentially says, yes, I do have the right to stay here. Um will help with something like that, would help to make sure that uh, I would not be uh, discriminated against were I to apply for a job, uh, for example.
0: But do you think a hard Brexit will force a lot of Brits to jump ship and leave Berlin?
1: My feeling is that not a lot of people will be forced in the, in the brutal sense of the word, uh, but a lot of people will probably feel incentivized, you know, to, to leave um, just to gain the security that they might not be able to obtain otherwise by the process that was just described by John, people who are falling through the cracks of this, you know, or people who just don't like risk at all, you know, the organizations they work for, if they decide that Berlin is still, you know, a place to have a business in or whether that was now too risky for them, you know, um, you know that, that's, I think, the, probably the more decisive factor in some of these life decisions that have to be made, uh, not so much, I think, the the, the bureaucratic uh, or political you know uh, urge or stress or you know or or pressure to to get people out
2: there's also an attitude issue in that there are actually some Brits i know who came to berlin since the referendum mm-hmm. because they said well, we want to get out of the UK just now because it's gone in such a Eurosceptic direction. Let's use this opportunity while we still can. And I remember a particular situation in my sport club the day after the referendum a guy who's a policeman in the German poli- Berlin Police Service. He puts his arm around my shoulder and he says to me, don't worry, John, it's OK, you can stay, he said. So the attitude in Berlin to us Brits here has been as positive as And welcoming as it ever had been. Whereas actually, the attitude of the way British politics has gone makes a lot of British pro-Europeans feel a bit nervous. So actually, ultimately, that kind of not being in Britain just now when it's politics is so negative, that's actually an incentive to make sure that you find a way to stay. And I
1: I meet Brits here in town uh, in Berlin, you know, who uh, come back from visiting the UK, people who live here, (laughs) Uh, spend a few days or weeks or the summer vacation or something like that, and they say, I I can't recognize my country any longer. The tone of the debate, the way that it's playing out, the way that the rift goes right, you know, through families and, and whatever you might have, whatever connection or network you might have, is felt to be quite brutalizing. Um, you know, uh, to some people. And, uh, and you know, I mentioned the spike in applications for citizenship. Um, there's a good number of people um, who come here uh, who haven't lived in Germany before, but who have a legal right to obtain German citizenship because of a family connection in the past, for example. Uh, and they come here deliberately to build, a, you know, <clears throat> kind of a lifeboat for themselves in terms of citizenship so that they will always have access to the single market in the EU after Brexit.
0: This is Studio Berlin on 104.1 FM. We'll be back after a short break, looking at Brexit's impact over here and the lessons we can draw from it.
1: A young woman fears she's inherited her father's genius and his debilitating mental illness. You think... You have so much talent. You think I'm like Dad. You have some of his talent and some of his tendency toward instability. Anne Heche... Robert Foxworth and Jeremy Sisto star in Proof. Next time on LA Theatre Works. Catch the all new
2: LA Theatre Works this Sunday at 7 p.m. on KCRW Berlin.
0: You're listening to Studio Berlin, and we're talking about Brexit with John Wirth, consultant for European politicians, and Jan Techau, who's with the German Marshall Fund. John, who here will be most affected by Brexit?
2: The groups that are most impacted are things: people who are students, retired people whose pensions will not be uprated um, as, as prices change in the way that, they, they, that works across the EU. People with different professional qualifications, for example, lawyers and surveyors and engineers are particularly impacted. Um, I feel particularly sorry for um, the children of British-German couples, for example. I know one case where the the son is old enough to become a British-German dual national because he's already 18, but the daughter will only reach the age of 18 uh, after Britain has left the European Union, and therefore she will have to choose uh, whether she becomes German or, or keeps the British passport. So there are many different circumstances. depends what type of person you are or your own personal circumstance of how much change that has on you on an everyday basis.
0: So have we have we learnt any lessons from Brexit? For me,
2: Brexit has been the most extraordinary learning experience. The extent to which the European Union has a massive impact on our lives in ways that we didn't really understand. The impact it has from everything from the import of lemons to the safety standard of cars, or how you check a batch of imported meat into the UK. These things, I've learned an extraordinary amount through all of this. The European Union goes into every area of our lives in a modern economy. And therefore... It would be possible to go through and do a Brexit, but the price of doing so, this famous bus of Boris Johnson's with, uh, save yourself £350 million a week. No, it's quite the contrary, because the European Union actually saves you an enormous amount of money as a country, because all of those things are regulated in the European Union. Britain needs to make its own, um, office for regulating the safety of, um, uh, of foodstuffs now, because it hasn't had one properly, because it's been dealt with by the European Union. So the extent to which we're really in interdependent, particularly economically. That's been an extraordinary learning experience for me to understand the depth of that. And Brexit has really shown us what good the European Union can actually do as I see it.
1: Jan? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this, you know, from the perspective of a think tanker who's not responsible for anything he says afterwards, obviously. Um, so what we've learned here is, is first of all, um, don't do referenda especially not on super complicated um, questions like this, um, uh, you know, turning them into a binary yes or no thing is a very, very bad idea. Um, and if something goes wrong because it's a referendum, you can't even fire anybody. So that's a, that's a bad thing. The, the second thing I've learned is that, you know, and this is something I knew already beforehand. But 2016, with both the, the Trump election and Brexit, you know, it, it taught us this in a very dramatic way disruptive turns of events, disaster is great for us as think tankers, demand skyrockets. You know, we are really like the vultures sitting out there by the, by the side of the road, waiting for the roadkill to be you know, ready for us to be uh, devoured. Um, so, you know, in terms of the workload that it generates and the requests it generates, it, it was a great thing for me. But that's not something that I'm particularly proud of, because, of course, you know, from a citizen's perspective, that's a very, very bad thing. Uh, and then the third thing that all of us in this analytics business, you know, learned the really hard and painful way um, is, uh, you know, that you cannot really trust the polls very much. Opinion polls are, you know, unreliable. It was astonishing, um, uh, so related to the entire issue, which I'm mentioning it, astonishing phenomenon. Uh, you know, in the second Obama election, the opinion polls were spot on uh, in the Trump elections. The same analysts with the same models failed bitterly. And the same happened, you know, on, on, the, on the Brexit thing where none of us really expected this. Uh, and so uh, we have to be a lot more careful as analysts to rely on the, on the pre-ordained uh, you know, data that's kind of floating around to make predictions uh, and listen a whole lot better to you know, what, the, what, the, what the drums tell us you know, in between the lines. Um, so, you know, as somebody who's not personally affected directly by Brexit, it has had a pretty dramatic impact on the way that we think us think about our own profession.
0: And that's it for this week's Studio Berlin. Thank you to John Wirth, communications consultant for European politicians. Thank you for the invite. And Jan Techau, senior fellow and director of the Europe programme with the German
1: Marshall Fund. My pleasure, thank you.
0: I'm Maisie Hitchcock, and you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening to Studio Berlin, our new current affairs show here on KCRW Berlin. Have a good weekend.